0: Today's scripture reading comes from Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4. It can be found on page 620 in the Bibles under your seats. Once again, Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. My name is Mike. I'm the Teaching pastor here at Trinity Community Church. Really happy to have you with us. We're continuing in our series called "Gospel in Life," where essentially we're just looking at the core teaching of the Christian faith, what's known as the gospel, and we're sort of exploring how it applies to the practical day-to-day um, moments of our lives. And so today we're talking about the topic of justice. Um, so, Betsy Anderson was was over at the townhouse that Ashley and I closed on this week, and she was helping us paint and asked me, like, hey, so this is kind of your bailiwick. And I had to ask her what bailiwick meant. And she was like, it's something you think about a lot. Like, okay, yes, it is, which is probably why, like, to my horror this morning, when I hit the print button on this sermon, 10 pages came out instead of six. So that is a horrifying thing in a preacher's life. But basically what's going to happen, I'm not going to preach for an hour and a half. So what I was hoping this sermon was going to be was like me talking to specific issues and it was going to be rad. In my head, it was rad. That's not going to happen as much. So instead, I think the way that we should think about today's sermon is kind of shaping our hearts, shaping our minds, so that we can begin to discern political issues and justice issues in our culture without just instantly deferring to the conservative talking points or the liberal talking points. But instead, what I want us to do this morning is to begin by reminding ourselves, and here I'm speaking to those of us who who identify as Christians, identify as followers of Jesus. I think the place for us to begin this morning is to remind ourselves of where our allegiance is. We are Christian before we are American, we are Christian before we are conservative, we are Christian before we are liberal. Jesus is political, don't get me wrong, but he is emphatically not partisan. And so where I think we need to begin this morning is by being being ready to identify the ways in which the algorithms on Twitter and YouTube have indoctrinated us more than the scriptures. I think we have to be open to the ways in which talk radio has indoctrinated us more than the scriptures, and be be willing, first and foremost, to, to reconsider all of our assumptions in the face of what the scriptures actually teach about justice. Our allegiance is to Jesus and his kingdom. So today, we're going to take every thought captive, interrogate it, and explore how the gospel moves us toward justice. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to walk through the first four of the five acts of the gospel. We rolled out a video this summer sort of explaining the gospel, and we'll show it the last two weeks of the Gospel in Life series as well. So it's a video showing the first, the, the sort of five acts of the gospel, and I'm going to explore the, the first four. So creation, fall, redemption, and church. And just show sort of how, how we're meant to think about justice through the, through the lens of the gospel. So jumping in, act one, God creates a world. Of righteousness. So I think it's safe to say that regardless of, of where each of us are coming from politically, we all want a just world. I don't think any of us would be like, I have a vested interest in injustice. I love it. I don't think any of us are like that. So we all, regardless of whether we're liberal or conservative, we all want a just world. We want a world set right. We want justice. But depending on who you talk to in this room, you may get different ideas of what exactly justice is. So I want to identify two of the sort of like big categories in in which we think about justice. So if you ask one person, you may hear that that for them, for for us to have justice, we need retribution. Basically, for the world to be just, each person should sort of get what's coming to them, right? The bad guys should be punished. Good guys should be given opportunity. And so for the most part, justice has to do with like avenging wrongs, right? Right? It's about avenging wrongs. It's about returning goods to the people they originally belonged to. It's about sort of setting back the skills. And it's, it's kind of the justice that, that, that we often think of in a, in a courtroom, right? So what, when you hear the word justice and a courtroom comes to mind, that's retributed, retributive justice, okay? So there's going to be two big words we're going to use. One of them is retributive. Retributive justice. It's justice that's sort of centered on retribution, then on the other hand, you have folks that would say, for the world to be just, we need our other big word, restoration. People need to be educated, communities need to be resourced and beautified. It's not as much about saying the scales back to neutral in sort of a courtroom sense. This is, this is more what, what people mean when they're talking about social justice. It's sort of restorative justice. It's about doing what needs to be done so that people's lives are enriched, lifted up, sometimes out from under oppression and if someone has done a wrong, retribution also has the sort of rehabilitation part to it. So that would be called restorative justice. So we got retribution, restoration. And, and, and you may identify with one or the other side. For our world to be just, does it need retribution or does it need restoration? This is kind of how the conversation has been framed for most of us here in the States. And as is typical, the Bible is going to throw a wrench into all our categories because when we ask the Bible what kind of, what kind of justice is it that we should be going after, the Bible is going to say both. It's always both. So, like, so the Bible is going to say we need both, for our world to be just, we need both retribution and restoration. In the Hebrew and Christian scriptures, the, what the world is missing is not just retribution or restoration. What it's missing is another R word righteousness. What the world is missing is righteousness. We hear that word, and it like sounds like something Dana Carvey's church lady character would be into. Like, righteous people are people who have never had fun, and they don't intend to anytime soon. Thank you very much. But really, righteousness, when you actually open up the biblical writings, righteousness is full of life, it's full of dignity, it's full of beauty. Essentially, righteousness is what happens when relationships are set right. When relationships are happening the way they were meant to happen. That's what the biblical authors call righteousness. And so that happens on a horizontal level. So you can be righteous to another human being. You can relate to them with all the dignity that they have as a human person. You can treat them the way that you'd want to be treated, and that's righteousness. But most of the time, when you t- hear about somebody being righteous, it, it's about this, not just the, the horizontal thing, but this vertical thing. That's about relating to our Creator the way that we were actually made to relate to Him. So righteousness is what happens when relationships are set right, and that's what the world was made for. So humans were made to have this flourishing relationship with our Creator, where we rely on him for everything and actually reflect his goodness and his glory and his beauty back out into the world. And we are also meant to have like these deep relationships with each other that would be shaped by that relationship with our creator. So as we're reflecting his goodness and glory and beauty, we're doing it in relationship with other humans. And so we're relating to them with all the, the grace that he, with which he relates to us, right? So we're reflecting God to them Righteousness brings life because righteousness comes with love and meaning and peace and kindness. It's what we were made for. Listen to this piece of poetry. It was written by one of the Hebrew prophets. The, the, this prophet was, was the prophet Isaiah. So this was probably written about the, about the 7th century BCE. And the idea of this poem is it's the prophet pleading with people to return to God and really to return to righteousness. And I'm going to quote it Uh, It's not going to be on the board, so you'll just have to listen. What you're going to hear is this prophet, he's going to say, come back to the Lord, and he's going to give this poetic imagery of people returning to righteousness and then the world getting set right. So here's how the poem goes. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. So in other words, return to the Lord. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that the Lord may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, it will accomplish that which I purpose. And shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And the mountains and the hills before you shall break into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn, shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar, shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. It's beautiful poetry, right? It's describing a world full of righteousness. Righteousness is what we were made for. It's the world set right. It's relationships set right. And really deep down, it's what we all want. Or is it? So the second act of the gospel is about a world that is in need of justice, a world that's in need of both retribution and restoration. Restoration. So just a week or so ago, our our nation was confronted by two mass shootings in one weekend. One of the shooters appeared to have been motivated by far-left ideology, the other shooter by far-right ideology. Most of us can't fathom how horrifying it would be to lose someone to that kind of violence. And if we're sensitive enough and discerning enough, we should realize that the problem that, that like created these mass shootings, the problem goes way beyond just the problems of the shooter. There's something wrong with the world. But really, when we say that there's something wrong with the world, what we actually mean is that there's something wrong with people. Right? There's something wrong with humans. Something is crooked about us. We do not do justice. And what I mean by that is that we don't actively choose the way of life that God designed us for. And in fact, it's become habitual for us as humans. We we are inculturated into it. We're habituated into it. For the writers of the Hebrew and Christian scriptures, they would actually insist that that bucking up against justice is instinct for humans, that we just sort of instinctually have this way of, of resisting the way of life that we are made for. It's our instinct to assert our own wishes. And the word for that is sin. In the Christian scripture, Hebrew scriptures, the word that's used for that is sin. And all of us participate in it, which is why the biblical authors commonly call all humans unjust. Humans aren't just, they're unjust. They're not righteous, they're unrighteous, right? They're undoing the righteousness and justice that God made this world for. Now, you might be thinking right now, hold up. What's all this talk of we? Because if I just heard you right, you just lumped me in with a mass shooter. Right? And, And let me be clear, not all sin is equal when it comes to destruction. So hear me on this. I'm not saying that everybody in this room is responsible for the same level of grief as a mass shooter. I'm not saying that we're all responsible for the same level of destruction. That would be absurd, right? But is there something that we share in common? Yes. Emphatically, yes. There's something we share in common. Now, we, we can look at mass shooters... And we can all agree that mass shootings are wrong. We want them to stop. And we can propose different solutions to the problem. And some are more valid than others and it's a very worthy conversation. So, so some are gonna say it's, it comes down to mental health, it comes down to a change that has to, has to happen culturally, others will wanna limit gun rights. All those arguments have value and we should have a meaningful conversation. But whatever it is, we're all ultimately agreeing that there's a problem, right? We can all come together and say mass shootings are awful, right? There should be no disagreement on that in this room. Like, well, I actually have a counter-argument. Nobody's going to say that. Like, we all are coming together around the atrocity of mass shootings, and we should know that God thinks it's a problem too. God loves life. God loves goodness. God hates murder. But here's the thing. He loves life, and he loves goodness more than we do. And so we can all come together in this room. We can all agree that mass shootings are terrible, but then we will all privately go back to our homes and dehumanize people with our anger. We'll, we'll feed this, this sense of, of just dehumanizing anger in our hearts. And we won't have any qualms about it. In fact, we'll feel very righteous and in touch with what's right. Those stupid conservatives, those stupid liberals... God doesn't compartmentalize. And so he agrees that mass shooting is wrong. He also thinks it's intolerable to express political frustration by picking up an assault rifle. But on top of that, he's not going to compartmentalize, and he's also going to, what he wants for the world is not just to eliminate mass shooting, he wants to eliminate the dehumanizing anger that drives somebody to do it. And that's the part that we all share responsibility for. All of us. All of us share the impulse. We might not share the assault rifle. Take a second and think of someone you've hurt. For me, it actually doesn't even take a second. The waitress at IHOP about 10 years ago. And imagine that moment when you said that thing, whatever it was, and then imagine what it must have been like for that person to try to sleep that night. And I'm curious about the ways that maybe they started to change as a person. I wonder how they feel when they bring that memory to mind. And I wonder if they they started sort of callous over whatever that hurt was and it changed something about their personality whereas at one point they would have been more uninhibited and vulnerable and, and open suddenly there's a hardness there I wonder maybe they started to act out we are all unjust we are all unrighteous everyone. What that means is that we have taken the world that God created for goodness and glory and beauty and we've exploited it and hurt each other. And the more we do that, as we each do that on a daily basis, more and more confusion and harm comes about. More and more destruction on like an emotional and spiritual level at the very least, often on a physical level. So over time, what ends up happening is you sort of have the world as it was meant to be and this widening gap between that and what the world actually is. And so justice for God is this. God made the world a particular way, and justice is anything that makes that gap close a little bit. It's closing the gap between the way the world was meant to be and the way the world is. And so for that gap to be closed, it's going to require both retribution and restoration. First, retribution needs to fall on humans. Each person does need to get what they have earned. The problem is all of us universally have not earned good. From the minds of the, of the biblical writers, what they're looking at is the evil and darkness within humanity. And so for, for them, what, what the wages of our actual works are, are death, an eternal kind of death. Justice has to be done. And what that's going to look like is God actually expelling whoever has has sort of tarnished his world, sort of handing them over to their own desires and quarantining them away so they can no longer harm the world he made. And the problem is, all of us are in that population from the perspective of the Hebrew and Christian writers. And so no matter how much—this is the added problem—no matter how much shame we feel or guilt, it actually doesn't do a lot to help the problem— Because we can't reverse what we've already done, right? So I was talking to Steve, one of our elders the other day, and he brought up mass shootings again and and talking about justice. So imagine a situation where the mass shooter is taken alive, right? He doesn't off himself. He's taken alive and he's given the death penalty. That dude can't die 22 times. If you kill him, and again, Hear me, I'm not saying anything about the death penalty right now. I'm I'm not commenting on that at the moment. This is the hypothetical situation. So even if you kill him, ultimately what you've done is eliminated him from society, but it doesn't reverse the destruction that he left in his wake. Again, that's not saying the death penalty isn't worth doing. I'm not commenting on that. I'm just saying the destruction remains, the grief remains. He can't be killed 22 times. And even if he could, how do all the effects of his wrongdoing get reversed? Human justice is highly limited. There's a show, I hesitate to even bring it up. Don't watch this show. It's called Luther. It's one of the most horrifying shows I have ever seen in my life. What it does really, really well is it confronts you with, like, just heinous, heinous evil. You know, there's people doing crimes of incredible atrocity and then the cops come in and sometimes it ends in a gunfight and the guy just sort of impotently gets mowed down in the corner of a room or whatever and and there's just this total feeling at the end of it of like what did we just accomplish right like all the grief remains In the Christian and Hebrew scriptures, there's this statement, vengeance is the Lord's. And the reason why is because humans aren't actually able to avenge. We can't reverse what we've done. And so let's imagine a situation where where we're trying to make ourselves right with God. And so we say, all right, fine. Fine turning over a new leaf, I'm done. Here at the age of 30, Mike is going to live perfectly. And then, like, suddenly I do it. It's just like 30 to 90, the next 60 years, I just, it's spotless, right? What do you do with the first 30 years? I still can't reverse the destruction that I've participated in. And so what we end up with is the situation where where humans are, are going to be the objects of retribution and there's nothing we can do to help ourselves. Now, if you're here and you don't identify as a Christian, this whole conversation might seem super fundamentalist, super fire and brimstone. Let me speak to that just briefly. Here in the United States, we have been incredibly insulated from death and evil. Unbelievably so. I mean, most of the death and evil that we encounter, we encounter on a 24-hour news cycle or on Netflix, which means that, like, half of what the evil and death we're encountering is fictitious. We've been incredibly insulated, most of us, from the, the evil and death in the world. But when you encounter folks who have survived genocide, so, for instance, right now I'm thinking about a, a writer named Miroslav Volf, who, who witnessed the Croatian genocides. When you're talking about somebody who has encountered real-time Evil. I mean, just the devastation of what humans are capable of doing. We're very creative creatures. Like, when you actually encounter what we have done, the the question that that you get bothered by is not, how could God be good and bring retribution? The question that begins to haunt you is, how could God be good and forgive? When you're actually in touch with human evil, and the extent to which we harm each other, not just on the large scale, but how each of us on, on the small scale are constantly feeding into those same impulses, the question is, how can God be good and forgive? And if we struggle with God's justice and the reality that we all deserve it, it, it might just because we're, we're too American for our own good. It might be because we're just too American for our own good. For the world to be just, we need retribution. Now here's the dilemma. God loves us. God loves people. And so how is God both going to be just and bring retribution? How is he going to do that and yet still restore humanity? That brings us to Act 3. Jesus suffers our retribution so that we can receive restoration. So today's reading comes from a collection of writings that emerged in the 8th to about 7th century BCE from the prophet Isaiah. So he was a prophet of Israel, and most likely the book was also written in part by his disciples. So he lived around the 8th century to the 7th century, and basically what's going on is this. The passage is written from the perspective of a figure that shows up a lot in the book of Isaiah, and the figure is called the servant of Yahweh, the servant of Yahweh. And he shows up a whole bunch. Sometimes in Isaiah, it's, it's, you know, the poetry is being written from his perspective, and then at other times he's being like, talked about in the third person. So m- many of us are familiar with Isaiah 53, the suffering servant passage, my servant will do wisely. That, so that's talking about the same figure. But sometimes he actually speaks in the book of Isaiah. And so it, today's passage is him speaking. And, and the servant of Yahweh, he's this figure who brings about righteousness. So here's that, the, the passage again, just one more time. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who, all who mourn. And then it, it goes on into sort of describing poetically what. The significance of that is. Now, why did we choose this passage today? Here's a really interesting thing. In the, in the Gospel of Luke, so the biography of Jesus that the writer Luke wrote, he records how, how Jesus, you know, gets baptized, the Spirit of the Lord falls upon him, and then not too, too long after that, he's in his local synagogue, and it was common for the men in a town to go to the synagogue and pick up a scroll and they would sort of all do, do readings and it was just kind of a way of serving each other. So Jesus is a part of the town. He picks up the Isaiah scroll and he turns to this passage. He reads this passage about the servant of Yahweh who will come to bring about justice. And then he rolls up the scroll and says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, this dude just showed up. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus came to bring about justice and righteousness. He came to bring about justice not only to save people from the retribution they deserve, but to give them the restoration they don't deserve. Jesus came to save the world. So how is he going to do that? Well, it happens through the cross and the resurrection. So when we see Jesus going to the cross, what we're actually seeing is a divine courtroom scene right? We are seeing divine retribution. What we're not realizing necessarily up front, unless we've really read the scriptures, is that the Father and the Son, two persons within the Godhead, have conspired together for this moment. We're, we're seeing the working out of a divine conspiracy that as Jesus is carrying his cross up the hill, he is carrying with him all the retribution that should fall on us, So that God God is going to be a just judge. He is going to bring about retribution, but all of it is going to fall on the body of Jesus. So that as Jesus is on the cross, God is looking at him and saying, sinner. And Jesus, as the perfect one, absorbs it all, absorbs the retribution. So that now God can look at humanity and say, perfect, righteous, just. Jesus takes our place and he exchanges his righteousness for our unrighteousness. His justice for our injustice. We switch places. And on the cross, God looks at Jesus and he calls him what we are so that we can be called what he is. And in this way, God is just and the justifier, right? God makes just. The word that theologians will use is that word justification, which is just a huge word and it's a little bit intimidating. But basically what, it, what, it's, what it's saying is that God declares people just. He makes people righteous in Jesus. So he's, he's giving us the status of Christ there on the cross. But the good news isn't finished. Jesus rises again. And what that basically means is that restoration has now begun. As Jesus is walking out of his tomb, the new creation is walking out with him. So that all the retribution has been lifted off of those who will trust in Jesus. And now suddenly the restoration of the world begins. God begins to work out what he has been planning ever since the fall. Since before the fall, really. All things being restored, the resurrection is a down payment. So that's the good news of the gospel. Just God has made an unjust people just. So how does that shape our lives? Let's go to Act 4. The church takes part in the world's restoration. It's interesting, Luke, that same guy who recorded Jesus in the synagogue, reading Isaiah, Luke is really volume one of one work called Luke-Acts. And at the beginning of Acts, he says, this is the book of all the work Jesus continued to do. Jesus doesn't actually appear that often in Acts. The church appears. And what we see is just as the Spirit of God falls on Jesus— The Spirit of God falls on Jesus' people. The work of Christ has just begun, and now that work continues through us, the church, the power of the same Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is upon Christ. The Spirit of the Lord now pushes the church to do what he did. And what will that include? Bring good news to the poor. Bind up the brokenhearted. Proclaim liberty to the captives. The opening of the prison to those who are bound. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's justice. The church will continue the work that Jesus came to do. Let's throw in some other passages. Proverbs 31, 8 through 9. Open your mouth for the voiceless, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Jeremiah 22:3. Deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the immigrant, the fatherless, and the widow. The church becomes a people who serve a common vision, and that common vision is the kingdom of God. We become a people whose allegiance is not fundamentally to conservative or liberal talking points, because both of them are going to fall way short. When we become citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we become really mercenary when it comes to political parties because neither of them fully satisfy what it is that the Bible is actually describing. We become people who live by the way of the kingdom. And the church announces and demonstrates that kingdom. We announce the kingdom through the work of evangelism. And we demonstrate the kingdom through the work of justice. We announce the cross. We demonstrate the crown. And when we do these things, people get a glimpse of the world that God is bringing about. It's, it's just like Jesus mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount, that as the church does the work of Christ, it is like light, like a city on a hill that people are drawn into. It is like light that shines before people and it drives them to give glory to their Father who is in heaven. When the church does justice. It shows people the heart of God. Here's another poem from Isaiah that illustrates this in a a cool way. Is this not the fast or is this not the worship that I choose? It's God speaking. Is this not the worship that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? and bring the homeless poor into your house. When you see the naked, to cover him. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. If you pour yourself out for the hungry, and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. God is remaking the world. The good news of the gospel is cross and crown is that by the cross of Christ people are forgiven, and through the crown of Christ the world will be made new. And in this really mysterious way, we, the church, are invited into the process. We are asked to take part in displaying the kingdom of God to the world. And throughout the whole scriptures, the the unanimous way that that has been worked out for the people of God from Genesis to Revelation has been through justice. It's been through pouring ourselves out for those who are in need. So I have to wrap up, but a couple... A couple of points. I think this is going to lead us to reach out to all kinds of different populations. There will be the poor. I think there will be the immigrant and the refugee. And you may, your interpretation of how a country should restrict immigration, you can hold a conservative or liberal view on that. But when you see suffering among a people group, you also need to pursue their help. If, if you have the resources and opportunity to do so. And so I think it'll include the refugees and the immigrants. Here in our country, we have this thing where your worth is basically what, what you, your use is, like your worth, what you can be used for. And so when someone doesn't seem as useful to society, it's like we have this cultural thing where we just give ourselves permission to dehumanize them. And so voiceless populations like the unborn, the disabled, and the elderly are consistently being abused, and, and, and it's, it's difficult to get anybody to see the importance of, of what's happening because, after all, they're voiceless. They don't have worth, right? We, the church, should be really in touch with the fact that human value is not based on our usefulness, but on our humanity, And so we will reach out to voiceless populations. And I want to end on a note on on unity. So again, I you may have noticed I've been largely avoiding politics, but justice gets political. It's just sort of the way that it is. And in our congregation, we're we're more or less politically diverse. We have, I think we're a majority conservative and and then the minority liberal, but we're pretty diverse in terms of political. You know, standing or whatever. As far as like how a government needs to be run, so government involvement versus, you know, government restriction. I think for us as Christians, where we need to begin is with the kingdom of God. And we unite around that shared vision because that vision can be shared by a socialist and by a libertarian, right? And what those people differ on is how government should actually be involved in the lives of people. That isn't a valid reason to divide. Because at the end of the day, when the chips are really down, I'm going to be volunteering in the same place as someone who differs from me politically. I'm going to be giving money, largely to the same organizations. I'm going to be weeping with the same groups of people that they're weeping with because at the end of the day, they're my brother or sister in Christ. It doesn't matter that they, they, they differ from me on a political level. I think another thing that often divides people are are questions of racial disparities in in our nation. We can agree that there's disparities economically among races. Where the disagreement occurs is in the cause. Some folks will talk about it more as an individual thing that's caused by individuals. Others will say it's more systemic. But for us as the church, that's not a reason to divide we come together around the shared vision of the kingdom. And when we come together around that shared vision that we're agreeing together that it's the, the kingdom of Jesus and his glory that we want, then it actually makes it able so we can all come to the table and have a fruitful conversation about what the cause actually is. And right, Because right now, on all political issues, the rhetoric is just slanderous on both sides. It's ridiculous. And that is not becoming of the people of God. We should be able to to unite as Christians around the shared vision of the glory of God and the life of the world and the kingdom of Christ. Like, at the end of the day, we're all at this table because of God's grace, man. And so we should be able to have the humility and the patience with each other to work out these issues. Causes matter. We need to figure out the cause of of all these different things. If you misdiagnose the cause, you're going to misapply the solution. But at the end of the day, we come to this table and unite around the kingdom of God. Our nation is nauseated by division. The church is not the place to divide over politics. The the reasons to divide come down to the gospel. When the gospel becomes compromised, the cross or the crown, when those become compromised, then, then the conversation changes and it's going to be really impossible to really even come to that same table, right? But for us... At Trinity Community Church, my my desperate prayer for us guys is that we would be able to be cordial and earnest together because we're all noticing the same problems. In our country, oftentimes we're dividing over diagnosing the cause, which is just so silly to me. Let's all recognize the problems and go after them together as the people of God who love the appearing of his kingdom. The world needs the gospel. It needs to hear of the grace of God. It needs to see the kingdom demonstrated. I don't, I don't know what else to say on that, I guess. I, I just think that we have all the resources that we need in the gospel to come together tonight. So let's do it, right? Let's, let's do justice. Let's love mercy. Let's walk humbly with our God. I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, ultimately, I thank you for the cross because it is by the cross that we are drawn together, that you have have absorbed all the retribution for our sake with no works of our own added in. You've given us sheer grace to start anew and, and to receive that grace every step of the way. So I pray, God, that that because you have been just toward us, we would be just toward the world. And God, ultimately what we long for is the righteousness of the kingdom. And so we pray that you would come quickly.
0: Amen.